You are listening to Uncanny Landscapes, Excursions into the Otherwise, with Justin Hopper. And of course, it's usually naively thought about, oh, it's this indigenous, this harmonious relationship between this heritage in the landscape and the nature. But of course, I, I work with war heritage and war heritage within this nature preserves areas. And uh, how do we see these people? We usually see it just as trash because there's huge remains. There's just piles of objects, of machinery lying inside this natural environment. Some people want to remove them. And, but I think about how can we think about these objects as a part of the natural environment. The, the Second World War is so, so uh, visible through material remains still in northern Norway. So that aspect is not ephemeral at all. It's, it's vague, of course, you have these overgrown sites, but it's so much stuff. <laughs> Welcome to Uncanny Landscapes, a series of conversations around and excursions into landscapes of the otherwise. You've just heard today's guest, archaeologist Stein Farstadvold, describing the intersection of nature and aftermath in Arctic Norway. More Stein very soon. And I'm your host, Justin Hopper. I am speaking to you from a small room in Dedham Vale, an area of outstanding uncanny beauty in the east of England. It is my goal through the conversations and accompanying detritus that comprise these podcasts to determine and slowly, poorly, define their subject matter. They are concerned with a wide variety of interpretations of the uncanny landscape, which is, for reasons that will become obvious, the experience with which we so often encounter our surroundings. As I prepared this installment, archaeologists, including Dr. Matt Pope, a friend of all things uncanny, published findings on a site in West Sussex that includes the earliest bone tools found in Europe, dated to 500,000 years ago. At this site, traces in the landscape revealed, as Pope told the BBC, as close as we can get to witnessing the minute-by-minute movement and behaviors of a single, apparently tight-knit group of early humans. In this location, our collective ancestors butchered a horse. The activity lasted a few hours, and then the group may have moved on, and yet this action, perhaps forgotten by its participants within days, was recorded for half a million years. Stein Farstadvold is an archaeologist of a different sort, looking for similar anomalies in the landscape, hauntings by those who came before, people whose lives leave traces outside the written word. But in his case, some of those people may still be alive. Stein is a postdoc at the University of Tromsø, Arctic University of Norway, where he researches historical and contemporary archaeology of the Arctic. I was introduced to Stein through a paper he wrote called Vestigial Matters, Contemporary Archaeology and Hyperart, in which he discusses the archaeology of strange material culture found in his landscapes, objects which are anomalous and out of place. At the heart of this paper 
is a snowstake, a particular tool of roads in the far north that he found inexplicably in an abandoned landscape garden on the Norwegian coast. I spoke with Stein about this paper, as well as an introduction to the occasionally uncanny concept of contemporary archaeology in general. We spoke about the Japanese concept of hyperart and how it relates to archaeology, and about the idea of prehistory presented by Gavin Lucas, prehistory not as a time before writing, but as a category of material time, independent from, and synchronous with, textual history. And Stein discussed his work exploring the material remains of a quarter million German soldiers camped out in the Arctic during the Second World War. Beer cans sitting where they were thrown around a campfire, literally frozen in time, perhaps forever. Traces that could potentially last as long as those of the horse butchers of Boxgrove. Visit Stein's Twitter and Instagram feeds for images from the Arctic. There's a link in this podcast's info as is a link to the music of Alison Cotton, whose latest recording from the London to Bergen Ley Line provides our soundtrack today. And now, describing life in Tromsø, Stein Farstedbal. I'm currently sitting in my office in an almost empty university in the city of Tromsø. It's a far north in a larger city in northern Norway. And there's a university city, it has a large university several thousand students, and uh, it calls itself also the Arctic University of Norway. And that should tell you about the place I live now currently. It's uh, it's a very, very far north, but uh, even the climate is quite mild. You know, the lowest degree centigrade measured inside the Tromsø city is 18.9 below zero, and uh, that's not much at all. But, but it has this very distinct landscape, of course, the fjords and mountains, everything, but uh, the vegetation is quite different than for the south. It's more, uh, it smells like, almost smells like mountains and moors when you're down at sea level because the vegetation is always like this higher latitude place. So it's, it's a quite different place to visit if, you, if you've never been to the far north. But it's a surprisingly mild and, of course, wild place too. They're uh, very sparsely populated, but it's populated. People think about the Arctic as desolate, uninhabited, but even through since the last ice age, people has lived in this landscape uh, for a very, very long time, and they find traces everywhere. So if people think of this as Arctic empty landscapes, they certainly are not. There's very, very much to see here and uh, not only wild nature, as, uh, of course, the indigenous people, the Sami people have lived there for um, several thousand years, probably. And uh, it's a mixed cultural place, too, because it's in the north, not far from Tromsø, the Lingen Mountains, and very much the place where cultures meet. Of course, the Sami was present further south in Norway, but this is, especially today, you see their presence very much. So it's... uh, it's a very interesting place, and Tromsø itself is an interesting city because its uh, main population center is on this island in this sound between uh, an island and the and the land on the other side. So the university is also on this island, the Tromsø island, or in Samid Rumsva island.
So uh, you can only go on and off through bridges or tunnels. So uh, it's uh, it's very close both to the sea and fjords and mountains. And of course, uh, it's an incredible place if you like to adventure into yeah. nature because it's uh, the mountains are really close by. So you just had to take the bus, city bus, and you can stop at the stop and walk straight into the mountains. And, and uh, a small, yeah, a small thing I can tell about moving around in Norway, especially, it's everywhere. It's that we have the freedom to roam. You know, there's people can't you can't walk into people's garden, but you can walk everywhere else. People can't deny you access to private properties. It's very weird thinking about places where you can't, you know, travel into the forest that's privately owned. But even even in Norway, you can, within limits, also pick berries forage inside private properties as long as it's not commercially driven so so uh, it's it's very interesting and that's uh, something all the nordic countries share yeah you're, you're an archaeologist but you know obviously for most of us we sort of traditionally think of archaeology as being about prehistory your work concentrates a bit more on the historical and perhaps more importantly for our conversations contemporary archaeology yeah, it might first sounds like an oxymoron, you know. Yeah, well, I do archaeology and contemporary. We had a lot of written sources. You could interview people. But then you start to think about, you know, the contemporary landscape is also built up of the objects we use and discard and what information they contain. Because shortly said that a lot of the stuff we do with stuff and make stuff and leave behind have a lot more information than we think. So... We think naively that you know everything about the societies we ourselves live within the contemporary society, but there's a lot of stuff that you can discover by studying, especially discarded material culture, like studying garbage. You will find very much that people even don't remember what they throw away. So contemporary archaeology is in a sense also yeah, the study of contemporary material culture with archaeological methods. Also, we collect objects, uh, survey and, uh, and systematize, but uh, personally, for me, contemporary archaeology is about the contemporary. You know how the present, the future, and the past coalesce in the present landscape, and that's an uh, object to study in itself, not just to reconstruct a narrow, distant, linear past, but see how the present is. Um, it's composed of all these different components of the past and of the intermingle. So a part of contemporary archaeology is, of course, a critical heritage study, thinking about heritage, how the past come to us and how we deal with the past. I suppose all archaeology really is, is about the way our present intersects with, uh, um, with a past, with some material version of the past and and what you're saying is essentially that when you talk about contemporary archaeology you're, you're talking about not just this present moment or you know recent past that we're very recent past that we're looking at but in fact the way that that intersects and collides perhaps with um with uh his, with the historical with the prehistorical with the with the future in fact absolutely so People might disagree on this. Of course, contemporary archaeology have many different perspectives, but this is one of my main perspectives. And during my PhD work, I worked with this perspective that, for example, I worked with 
the case study, this abandoned landscape garden. So people might think an archaeologist want to reconstruct how the garden was in the past, but I used archaeological methods, especially going around, being the flunner, doing surface surveys, because I was interested in how the landscape was as a ruin. How does the past appear to us in these places? Because this contemporary, messy, vague landscapes are usually totally overlooked. Yes, you can use methods to reconstruct how the past gone was, but what about describing this ruinous, virgent landscape garden that has yeah been left for alone in 70 years? So that's my contemporary perspective, but that does not mean at all leaving out the past, you know, but this instead just grabbing the past and seeing it, how it coalesce and merge with the present. You know, when you talk about uh, using archaeological methods uh, to explore a contemporary environment, can you just tell me one or two examples of, of what those methods might be? Because again, I think, you know, I think to me, as much as I, as much as I am sort of thrilled by these ideas, I still can't quite get a grip on how the scientific side of archaeology um, plays out in these kinds of contemporary envi environments. The first and foremost is the archaeology method of the survey. You know, people always think about archaeology as exclusively digging in the ground, but th that's, that's totally wrong because the survey is about systematically transversing the topography and landscape, noting down uh, future in the earth, what lies on top, how things are, so we can... A uh, survey has always need to precede uh, exca excavation because you have to do a survey to know what's underground. In some sense, so we, it's it's a method that we share with geography and everything, but it's very fundamental also to archaeology to go and precisely observe how and what things are in the landscape. It sounds very banal, but it's it's a very important method. That even the buried things are a part of the present through a contemporary lens. So even the very, very recent past is in the earth. So, of course, I could use excavation on my garden to reconstruct it, because even during the 70 years, it's abandoned a lot of the structural paths and what plants grew there could be reconstructed through pollen sampling or just excavation paths. This is obviously quite a young field. Am I right in thinking that? Yes, yes, yes and no, but it's it's existed <laughs> since the 70s with William Rattias, especially a garbageology project in, uh, in the United States, Arizona, where they used explicitly archaeological methods of excavation to study garbage heaps and trash people throw away. But also, I think I can also be traced separately to other line that has not merged with our Western tradition is the tradition in Japan with the 
cooking mm. dark with the study of modernity through the environment far back at 1920s but so right there's always okay. been this uh, reluctance to you know look at ourselves in the present the anthropology of us of course there's been a lot of progress in the years but there's been a huge step you have to always study study the other that's you know, to discover things you have to study the other if it's you know uh, Aboriginal people or the distant past as imagined that's this very other places and stuff but I see there also there are also more always more things to discover in the present both about ourselves or contemporary societies and everything like that through over uh, especially discarded and, and abandoned material culture in another sense some people in the 20th century saw Baudelaire or or even Edgar Allan Poe Walter Benjamin referred to Baudelaire as being a botanist of the sidewalk, which actually is sort of quite close to getting at this idea of that you're moving towards with contemporary archaeology. Um, so perhaps there's a perhaps there is some Western tradition further back as well, but without uh, uh, just without that last scientific aspect put in there. I think you, yes, I think you touched upon a very interesting subject. I have not written or discussed it in any ways. I think there's you know, this archaeology as a discipline, but I think there's a, a unavoidable archaeological nature about human environments. You know, I think archaeology in one sense or another is inescapable because we have to deal with our past as we live within its societies and uh, places and cities and even, even the rural places. You always will encounter something previous, even if it's from the Paleolithic thousands of years ago all well, the yesterday's garbage it's uh, you have to uh, it's we have to think and deal with this messy mess of stuff that comes raging at us uh, in a Walter Benjamin way of the angel of history this huge heap of history just piling up Fundamentally, the paper is about this banal concept that uh, you know human environments, uh, even the natural world in some sense, are composed of these incomplete things. That if you imagine landscapes and everything, you think about this wholeness, this everything is complete and merged together. But what about when you think about human environments? There are always this vestiges, these fragments, this uh, rudiments that's cut off. So I think to envision environments, we have to take into consideration the fragmented ways things appear to us. That is especially relevant to archaeology because we always deal with fragments. So putting this Mm. into the context, uh, in my landscape garden, I found this object in the middle of garden, it's very familiar object. Can I can I interrupt you? Can you tell me a little bit about the landscape garden itself, where where it is, and and what you mean by that? It's a it's an abandoned summer estate in uh, the city of Molde. It's been abandoned for uh, many years now, but uh, it's uh, northwestern coast of Norway, of course, and uh, it's been this 
was this originally a private summer residence for this uh, Danish Norwegian industrialist bite built in the 1970s was in you know properly used probably into the uh, intervening years between those world wars but suddenly it fell into disuse people family with money just disappeared slowly and the landscape gardens probably since the time of second world war slowly started to dilapidate so this huge landscape garden in the middle of the city of Molde that's been yeah slowly left to its own devices for 70 years and what i mean about landscape garden is quite uh, it's of course ties into the english traditional garden uh, design and uh, this was a bit more victorian and histographically it's into this very massive period that was between uh, the 1850s and the 1900s. It was this when everything intermingled bit of time periods was mixed. So we have this uh, very serpentine parts, but yeah, it's, they tried to accentuate the natural landscape of Norway in the plants, but it is natural currently plants, but suddenly they have these flower beds full of very exotic plants from hemp to uh, castor oil plants and everything. and. They had this interesting pond in the middle of the garden they called the Atlantic Ocean with these natural small islands with these uh, log cabins on them. But in the middle of these ponds, you have this classical reproducing of uh, Greek statues. So it's a very weird place in the sense from, from the start. But And all, they all had this cave that was a natural ruin that wow. ironically today have become a, become a ruin of a ruin. The snow stake is simply stakes the place along the road in places with a lot of snow because during snowstorms and large downpours, you know, the road disappears. So you have the has to have this contour of the road with this plastic stakes. To, the one in the garden I found was this red plastic stakes, and they disappear into the environment. Then you find them all along the shores, and there's the infused the terrain because you can think about how many miles of roads in Norway and. All the roads almost have these stakes along them, so they're extremely common banal objects that people don't really think about at all. They're just there, so it was a bit subversive to take it and make the main thing in the paper. And it was very out of context where I found it in the middle of the garden. Somebody I don't know why have placed this stake, just put it into the soil, and 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 I countered it, and it's. Didn't notice it first. I passed it several times, but then I suddenly started to think about it. What is this object? You know, I can try to think about it. it was kids that brought it in the forest, but what is this object in its current situation? In its this displacement? Why don't we describe landscape with this? You know, this bizarre but banal objects in the middle of it, and I try to try to describe and discuss this vestigiality. This and it's very interesting to try to write about this vagueness of this meaninglessness. But think about how much the landscapes are. It's often this unintended occurrence and that things that persist far beyond their intended purpose or use or anything. And we live in this environment constantly, but we don't really talk a lot about living in places with such things. There was a quote in the paper that I thought was really sort of central to what we are talking about when we talk about uncanny, the uncanny in a landscape. 
Um, and it's this Paul Graves Brown, who is not someone I'm familiar with, but um, uh, you quoted him as saying, the purpose of this enterprise then is to make the familiar unfamiliar, to lead the reader to make their day-to-day -day experience and re-examine how things around them shape practice. In a way, the familiarity with which we see uh, our surroundings is generated by filtering out these vestigial objects. But as you say at one point in the paper, um, you know, this has incredible implications for archaeology, which is entirely based on context. Yeah, because how do you contextualize non-context? It's quite hard because you always filter out and it, the non-context be, can't become inside the context, you know. Uh, the typical image of this hyper art, like Akasawa Genpe imagine it, is this stairway that lead, leads nowhere. People have, or I think most people all have seen these stairs somewhere in the environments, but how do you bring these non-stairs, these dysfunctional stairs, this vestige into our understanding of the world? And it's totally beyond intention and everything. This, this, this. But it's like you said. It starts. It's this vagueness, this uncertainty. That's much easier to not talk about. The idea that you talk about there of hyper art. Um, can you just briefly uh, remind us of where that um, concept comes from? It comes from the Japanese artist Akasawa Genpei. He was uh, Neo Dadaist quite uh, recently passed away, but was very active during the 60s, 60s and uh, all the way into 2000 years in uh, in Japan, he was he was quite famous person. Commonly, even even the hyper art concepts, it was famously well known during the 80s when it was quite popular to take. The, the, I think the essence of uh, hyper art is this uh, useless piece of architecture that's still taken care of. So it might be you know a doorway that's been. Uh, uh, been uh, locked away, uh, covered, but still there. And the most famous, you know, is steps leading nowhere that the doorway has been been uh, covered over, but the steps are still functional and still taking care of people. <laughs> Don't use it, but take care of it. I think that you've described his initial hyper art discovery as being a, a staircase that led to nowhere, but for which the banister had been recently replaced. Yes, and, and the essence there is they... He, they should also not be in, intentionally ornamental. They should not be, you know, these intended vestiges. They should be this, you know, almost like uh, part of the unconscious of the city. Then people, when they heard about the concept of hardware, can't stop discovering them. Because in a way, it's what, like you were saying about um, just material culture in, in general, it's kind of one of the things that the whole world is made of, are these little remnants that become sort of, Almost, they become almost folk objects, don't they? Yeah, and I, I think they're they're inherently irrational. So I think, of course, many people try to reconstruct past landscape through archaeology and everything. They try to see always this completeness, this interconnectedness, but miss out on on uh, you know this haphazard, quite sometimes humorous part of uh, built human environments. Uh, there raises some questions. I, I don't think it's going to <laughs> hyperart is going to radically, you know, uh, deeply change science and archaeology and the sure. show. But I think it's very important to be conscious of. 
uh, not to make this flat. I, mean, I think a world without vestiges would be very, very uninteresting and impossible. I think heritage environments are littered with vestiges, and, but uh, usually vestiges get lost in the narrative because they always has to have this very purposeful, complete understanding of the past as we totally know what is there. Like my my work with the landscape garden is very much subversive against the idea because I want to I want to the, <laughs> in a sense engage with the vestiges, but also the things that and how. The afterlife hour. I'm I'm very much interested in how things persist and not, yeah. not change, but are 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 living beyond their intended use and intentions. And I think heritage is very much that in its whole. Sometimes we take care of things and beyond their intended usefulness. You know, castles where they are not used as castles; they're something completely else. But we yeah. display yeah. them as castles. So we've got this uh, heritage. Is and can in itself, you know, this very stage heritage is there yeah, has this very notion. Uh, it's it's weird. I think about the purpose of archaeology is always to explain and uh, give this concrete discussions about things and make sense of things. But making sense does not always lead to clear answers. It leads to more questions and wonder and stuff. Because I think this this. Uh, uh, unfinished objects and uh, vestigial traces are really important for imagination and everything. Very affluent society like, like Norway, and you look at our cities, how they changed the last 30 years, and you know, there's been this uh, unconscious war against vestiges. Everything that doesn't have this concrete aesthetics are removed and replaced and uh, Go away, but you will always find them, of course. But but there 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 can be, you know, uh, clinically cleansed from uh, environments because they they are vestigial. There's this idea of prehistory. Uh, the word prehistory. Um, and if, if I got this right, you're talking, I think, about a different way of looking at what, what you know, if we talk about archaeology as primarily being about prehistory, well, actually, is it possible that, you know, the things we say and apply to prehistory, the things we say about prehistory and apply to prehistory, is it possible that that same those same concepts actually apply to a broad spectrum of uh, of the chronological timeline of human life because so much of it is actually outside of the world of the written word. I think that's completely completely true. That yeah, the, you can apply the, the idea. This is Gavin Lucas uh, theorizing about time and. It's all about how, you know, what's the difference between what the environment, the landscape, the things we found outside and the texts. And we can always, for example, look at the blueprint of architecture. And when you compare the blueprint to the architecture, you always find, 
you know, vestiges, deviances, the, the things that look different. So I think there's a fundamentally, probably ontologically difference between objects you find in the environment and text. Not to deride text anyways, it's incredibly important about understanding anything, but I think uniqueness archaeology bring is the focus you know you know things can tell us very different things than text you know if we only have a book about the city what <laughs> how much would we lose so much about the sensual the unspoken you know or even the vague and uncanny and there's so much difference because you can even say that a lot of inf information archaeologists that dig in their distant past find about what people eat from the middens everything is information that in it's such detail that even the people that lived that time might not have known these details archaeology is a different kind of knowledge it's not completely knowledge about everything we need this history and ethnography and anthropology and everything together but the niche of archaeology is to bring forth you know what special things can can the objects and the landscapes and these things tell us apply to this idea of how the, even the present day has a prehistory things and objects that you know persist or made and exist outside the written record if you think about for example uh the homeless population of even a very very wealthy major american city you in some ways you couldn't really know very much about that population through anything other than its material culture yeah, that's very interesting because contemporary archaeologists have done studies on this. American archaeologist Zimmerman has written uh, papers together with others, and you have this recent published book by Rachel Kiddy called Homeless Heritage. So, uh, yes, so the archaeologists are, are dealing with that stuff, and exactly it's, it's about this almost, you know, the prehistoric sense of society. And this, I think it's hugely important not to think normatively that prehistory is worse than history. It's just different. Right. So in fact, actually, what you're talking about is just beginning to look at material culture in a way that takes into account the fact that, um, that every culture had its outsiders and its outside elements. Yeah, can I can even bring up the question about my garden case today there. Uh, I don't think it's written about in the articles you have read, but of course I found a camp inside there in 2011 that people have lived in this place. And uh, these are probably travelers from outside Norway, traveling people going there looking for work and um, in, in the city and have lived for a really while, long while inside this garden. Has the, the garden has accumulated a lot of objects because they're not a part of the local community, so they don't have garbage truck gathering in their garbage, so it's accumulated and accumulated, so you find things everywhere. And the, <laughs> but the, the bizarre thing is that the local county, uh, local, local municipality, went into the garden and cleaned up uh, some of these middens. And there, I found it interesting that they even go inside this ruinous landscape to clean up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So... To that's right, but they left the yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. the entire thing is essentially a ruin, but they took out so, the parts that didn't fit their vision of the ruin. They even went down and some of the nice campsites that chopped down the trees to make it more visible. It's <laughs> a panoptic in action, isn't it? <laughs> so, uh, so we'll always find it. 
it's very hard. You have to be very careful when written and studying these this traces of uh, especially vulnerable people and groups and minorities. But uh, I think some of the things that these vestigial places also always also can take care of memories that's, there's lost, that are lost to history, that's lost in papers. Uh, it's a place. It's 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 a place that you know is uh, very honest. It's where things can accumulate without you know being deleted, removed. I, I think these places are really important to both understand the past and, of course, the contemporary. Places are uh, are quite can be quite uh, unsettling, eerie, because yeah, you know because the the material culture is honest, like walking the beaches and finding all these drift matters get this dread, this sense of further uncanny. Did you get to, for want of a better word, dig those middens before they were cleaned up? I did not, but there was some, of course, there always something left. There always vestiges. They tried to clean everything up, but inside one of the you know small greenhouses in the corner, you find this this huge garbage pile that's been overlooked so we have this vestige of, of garbage this yeah yeah I, I did not do it because i found it a bit problematic and uh and there's a lot of ethics to think about so i try to mention it but i try not to deeply engage with it i, would, I think that would necessitate a complete different uh, project with a, a different kind of focus but it's very nice to mention i think yeah, no, it is interesting to think the, um, you know, obviously the ethics of archaeology are incredibly complex to begin with, but when you add in the contemporary element to it, it, it must become a minefield. Yeah, you have to be really careful, and uh, of course, you deal with environments you don't imagine this distant, remote, far environments you try to reconstruct, you engage, you know, with the environments people live and think about, care about even inhabit like like the garden the garden was you know abandoned the villa was empty but there was were people sometimes living in there <laughs> look it's every contemporary environment is a potential you know home or habitat even uh, forests uh, anything so there must be a danger of uh contemporary archaeology falling into the same ethical traps that archaeology you know in that sort of rush to archaeology in the 19th century when people were just you know ripping everything to shreds um you have to the there must be a, a bit of a danger of falling into the same trap because of not having similarly you know sort of hundred year old uh, ethical ideas developed yes yes absolutely and uh, I, th I think a lot of contemporary of course things could be better in some instances but Usually, especially in the British and Nordic side of the contemporary, there's a lot of ethical concerns. Of course, like I mentioned, Kiddy's, Rachel Kiddy's homeless heritage, and she was, has been using this community archaeology angle to, to you know, include even you know, people that has, was homeless and have been homeless. So she employed people to dig their own heritage. At the moment, uh, my postdoc project is called uh, Aftermath, the Nature of War. 
And uh, I look at this uh, how uh, this heritage landscapes and war landscape from the Second World War uh, interact and intermingle with the uh, nature protection areas, intersection uh, intersection the afterlife, you know, of uh, of uh, yeah war inside nature reserves. This one I work uh, directly with legislation and. Uh, yeah, it's even it's really weird. Really interesting. It ties slightly into your uh, idea of, uh, that I'm whale and this uh, areas of exceptional natural beauty. Because in 2009, we, Norway got this uh, bio, nature protection law, got changed to this biodiversity law about protection of the environment. And inside this legislation, it tried to tie into one specific protection category, landscape protection areas, where they want to tie into where nature and culture heritage remain together. And of course, it's usually naively thought about, oh, it's this indigenous, this harmonious relationship between this heritage in the landscape and the nature. But of course, I, I work with war heritage and war heritage within this nature preserves areas. And uh, how do we see these people? We usually see it just as trash because there's huge remain. There's these piles of objects of machinery lying inside this natural environment so people want to remove them. And, but I think about how can we think about these objects as a part of the natural environment. Yeah, there's huge amount, this, this large, large, large uh, amount of coastal forts because Norway was part of uh, uh, the Norwegen, as the, the, the fortress Norway. So they built this, all these fortresses along the coast. There were 250,000 soldiers, German soldiers in Norway. So there's huge, huge present. Of course, Northern Norway is also very close to one of the forgotten theaters of war. And that was the front line between Russia and Germany in the north. In the Litsa Valley, it's totally forgotten for narrative. It's, it was huge, huge battlefield uh, just close by in, in, in Russia. The, the Second World War is so, so uh, visible through material remains still in northern Norway. So that aspect is not ephemeral at all. It's, it's vague, of course. You have these overgrown sites, but it's so much stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, if there's two, if there's a quarter of a million soldiers, I mean, what they've left behind will be there. It seems for quite a while yet. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, no, that's an incredible. You know, it must be. Um, it must be several times the sort of standing population of the region. Oh yeah, that's just huge, huge amount of. Of course, there are lots of prisoners of war. I think almost over a hundred thousand. Prisoners of wars that you know we did this huge infrastructure projects in Norway. So, but Norway is so haunted by the vestige of war. People have, like my advisor and friend Bjarnar Olsen, ask you know, is the war really over some places? Because you can go to these remote, abandoned places on the coast of Finnmark, and you will find you know the the, the barbed wire fences are still standing. They are, they're not taken down, so they still catch garbage, but also animals get trapped. And it's this, you know, this aftermath, this afterlife of this war remains that continue and shape the landscape and the people and the memory and everything and the mythology in, in places. It does, it does beg the question that we're kind of always asking in these kinds of landscape studies, whether it's literary or archaeological or what, which is what is the what do we what does the culture consider its year zero 
those are the kinds of vestiges that had they been from, you know, uh, from the Wars of the Roses here or, or you know, uh, had they been from a sort of 18th century conflict would today be seen as some kind of heritage landscape that's of great sort of uh, historical and, and, and visual and panoramic importance. Whereas the, you know, as I've seen in one of your photographs, the literally beer cans left around the fire by, uh, by German soldiers is something that needs to be cleaned up. So, you know, where does, where does heritage begin? What year does heritage begin in this location? Oh, the one of the sites of work that is Svartholt is this abandoned fishing village and German coastal fort where they have these amazing traces of both the prisoners of war camps, where, which we have partly ex excavated, and even the uh, residence of the soldiers and the fort and the cannons, and everything is in place. And and that's the, that's the idea of uh, the project I'm part of. It's called Unruly Heritage. We talk about the idea of conceptualizing heritage, not really as a choice. That heritage can also be a nuisance, a, a, a problem we have to... Mm try to deal with you can't just choose what to inherit or not when you're living in this you know uh, aftermath uh, landscape of second world war in northern norway you can't choose oh i don't want to remember this huge bunker <laughs> close to my house but you can <laughs> say it's not my heritage but it's some kind of heritage it's some of these objects that's that haunts my surroundings this landscape arctic landscapes are not empty they're filled with stuff and one of the grasping things, like places like Sparrow, you know, we can see these remnants of bunkers, but down by the sea, you also can see this uh, almost probably 8,000 years house foundations from uh, Mesolithic times. Then again, you see these Neolithic places. So because of the Arctic environment and this slow accumulation of uh, Earth, this the past is so visible. So when you work in these places, it's the... the, the it's Everything is contemporary, you know. You find they find this stone tools there and a German, you know, uh, shell besides it. Thank you for listening to Uncanny Landscapes. We'll be back soon with the next installment. My guest was Stein Farstedvall. Follow him on Twitter at WasteUnearthed and on Instagram at Stein Farstedvall. There are links in the podcast info. The music was Behind the Spiderweb Gate from the new album Only Darkness Now by Alison Cotton, with thanks to the artist. The title theme is by the Belbury Polly, courtesy Ghostbox Records, and the Uncanny Landscapes icon is by Stefan Musgrove, Firebrand Creative. Additional special thanks to Lucy Greaves. I'm Justin Hopper. You can contact me via justin-hopper.com or on Twitter at Old Weird Albion. More installments coming soon. Follow or subscribe if that's an option, or keep a lookout on the wires. And until then, remember Tim Robinson. I wanted to put this field on my map, but of course, there was no way of indicating what was remarkable about it on the map sheet. In the end, I marked it with a dot, and in tiny print, the words, A Strange Field. There is nothing to be seen in it, just grey emptiness, nodding thistles, and occasional attendance of puzzled visitors on a mystique. I take from this instance another modality of places, strangeness. <laughs>